we are going to finish the book of Ruth this evening, not the Bible study. We have two more weeks to go, but tonight we're going to finish the book of Ruth. But before we get into a new portion, I want to pick up some threads from last week. Uh, for the tape primarily, this is what I'm going to do. And it's regarding the teaching last week about the foreign marriages, that there were certain people groups that God said were not permitted to enter into the assembly of the Lord. And I gave these to you last week for your notes, but I neglected to give them to the morning ladies. So I want to give them again so that we have it for anyone who might tune into the video. Uh, so, for your notes, this subject on the subject of marrying outside the tribe and outside the nation Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 and 4, also Deuteronomy 31, verses 28 through 30, Nehemiah chapter 13, 23 through 27. And as you take the time to go and read these references, you will see more confirmation that God had a prohibition against these foreign people groups, specifically the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the eunuchs from coming into the assembly of the Lord. But what the Lord was saying I believe, is that there are two assemblies of the Lord. There's the political and the religious. And this was a prohibition against these people groups from taking up political positions in the nation Israel. Any individual from whatever tribe, tongue, people group on the planet, if you genuinely pursue the true and living God, he will in no wise cast out. So anyone who genuinely seeks him is accepted in Jesus Christ. And there's a beautiful verse to tie this group of scripture up from Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 through 5. He says there, I will give them an everlasting name. He's talking about those people, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the eunuchs who genuinely come to him. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. And then we further this uh, concept in the New Testament in John chapter 6, verse 37. And in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 20, we learn that it is that man is not justified by the works of the law. So how are we justified? Well, you continue to read through those verses, and it tells us very clearly that we are justified if we have been crucified with Christ. Because then it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The law cannot redeem us. It cannot save us. What it does, it tells us what the rules are. And then it rule books us. And in showing us where we have broken the rules, we realize we need a savior. So that's what the law does. It teaches us that we need a savior. Now also, because it was in the dark of night, when Ruth was at the feet of Boaz proposing marriage to him, she had to rely on his word and not on her sight. And we are told that we walk by faith and not by sight. And then that verse goes on to encourage us saying, if you do indeed walk by faith and not by sight, no matter how dark it may seem around you, it goes on to say that we are of good courage. So we can take heart 
from God's eternal promise, whether it be in the Old Testament or the New. We abide at the feet of our Redeemer, no matter how bright or dark it is, and we can be of good courage knowing that he's got it under control. Also, I wanted to just point out one more thing from last week's study. In Ruth 3, verses 13 and 14, Boaz tells Ruth, after he says, all that you ask, I will do. He tells her, now you remain here this night. And in verse 14, he sa it says, so she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. It would have been unsafe for him to send her home in the dark by herself. Because remember, when every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, I don't know why it is, but somehow darkness makes that a lot easier. And he knew if she went out on the road by herself at night in this day, then she could be in physical jeopardy. So he, first of all, is protecting her from that kind of harm. You stay here. But as the light begins to dawn and people begin to stir, he says, you need to get out of here before anybody can recognize one another because he's protecting now her reputation. Now, even though nothing unseemly was going on between them, a gossip doesn't need truth to spread slander and innuendo. And I also want to point out that not only was Boaz protecting her in both of those ways, physically and her reputation, this is not a word for us today. This is probably a one time in the, in the history of mankind situation. This wasn't happening all around the landscape back in Ruth and Boaz's day where women were waking, you know, waking men up at their feet saying, redeem me. No, no. In fact, we have to be really careful that we do not read that and take it as license to kind of do whatever we want in innocence saying, well, hey, we were innocently, whatever the case may be, because this is your pattern of behavior. We have to live above reproach in this day because you know if this story took place today, somebody would have whipped out their smartphone and they would have had video footage of it and it would have been plastered all over Facebook the next day. And then all you're left to do is backpedal and explain yourself and nobody wins in that situation. So this is not a license to live a loose life and then claim you're innocent in the doing. Do not in any way give cause for reproach. My sweet husband takes this kind of thing very, very seriously. In fact, he will not accept a friend request or friend any woman on Facebook unless he has her husband's and my permission because that's someone else's wife. And he loves very dearly your sweet Robin Davis like a little baby sister. He calls her baby sister. And he loves to send her little texts like brothers and sisters might do. But she's someone else's wife. So whenever he sends her a text, he includes me in the thread so that he is above reproach and no one can come along and say anything untoward about anything that he's doing. And I admire that greatly in him. It's a great example to follow. So I just want to cover that as a wrap-up of last week's lesson. And now that brings us to this climactic finale of this beautiful love story. And it's going to conclude joyfully with the birth of a much beloved son named Obed and the restoration of all things. Ruth, or excuse me, Naomi, no longer bitter, 
And all of the citizens of Bethlehem are proclaiming Ruth to be better than seven sons. And that is a mighty appellation indeed, because to the Hebrew mind, if you have one son, that's God's sweet favor. If you had seven sons, seven is the number of perfect completion in the Israelite mind. So if you have seven sons, that's a sign of God's prodigious favor on you, his tremendous blessing. So the community gathers around this bridal couple and they pronounce their blessing. So we'll pick it up where we left off last week in chapter four, verse 10. This is Boaz declaring before everyone, moreover, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malin, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And then all the people who were in the court, that's literally the gate. Remember, they transacted business in the gate of the city. All of the people who were in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. And Leah, y'all, was the mother of Judah. He's going to play an important role here in just a minute. So just keep that in mind both of whom, Rachel and Leah, built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. So the citizens of Bethlehem now are calling upon their ancestors' example, and they pray that Boaz and Ruth will be fruitful and multiply, like Rachel and Leah, who along with their two handmaids gave birth to the nation Israel. Then the people continue the blessing with the hope of great prosperity and, and fame in Bethlehem. And boy, the Lord certainly granted their request. Verse 11 is a wonderful blessing to bestow on a newlywed couple. And then you read verse 12. Now the people are still speaking. Moreover, may your house be like the house of of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So this community blessing takes an odd turn here. And in order to understand what's going on, you have to track it back to the people involved. And you will find this story in Genesis 38. So we're going to go there. Hold your place here in Ruth. But in Genesis 38, we are going to read a really sordid tale of manipulation and deceit and just downright shameful behavior. The record here in Genesis 38 is placed right in the middle of Joseph's story. Joseph, who had the coat of distinction, his story is a beautiful model for us of Jesus Christ. We see in the story of Joseph what it is to be in the position of beloved son, of betrayal at the hands of the brothers, of being sold for pieces of silver, of being falsely accused, and so on. And then ultimately and finally being exalted above all 
and being the savior of his people and of all those who will come under his protection. It's a beautiful type of the Lord Jesus Christ. But his story is interrupted in chapter 38 with this story. And it's another one of those examples that I see in scripture where the Lord will give us a black backdrop in order that the true gem will shine forth. And in this portion, the true gem is Joseph's story and the black backdrop is his older brother, Judah. So indeed, Genesis 38 is going to tell us the story of Judah. He is one of those 12 sons of Jacob, Joseph's older brother. In fact, it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery rather than to kill him. So shortly after they sell Joseph, for what reason, we don't know. I don't know if Judah just couldn't look his father in the eye anymore or whatever the reason is, he leaves town. And he moves himself to a Canaanite town called Adullam. There, a Canaanite woman, the daughter of a man called Shua, catches his eye and Judah and this woman begin to live together. Shua, the father of this woman, his name means rich, wealth, opulent. And she and he and his daughter were pagans of the highest order. But apparently she had other charms to recommend her, i.e. daddy's dough. So she and Joseph, as, as well as, got married in God's eyes. Now, we see in this story another example of the Hebrew man marrying outside his tribe or nation of Israel. But this time, the woman is not a convert. She is not following Jehovah God. They will proceed to have three sons. And the first is given a Hebrew name by his father, Judah. As you read through the account, take note of the uh, masculine and feminine personal pronouns there that are used in the account, because you discover that she names the other two sons. It will say things like, she conceived and she bore and named. So she is responsible for the naming of the second two sons. And Pastor Chuck Smith points out that she, pagan that she is, gives them pagan names. It's an example to us that she is exerting greater and greater influence over this little family. And then she dies. And this is where it gets really ugly. Judah, who seems to vacillate between being an observant Jew and not, Uh, reverts back to the Hebrew custom of taking a bride, the father taking a bride for his son. Now, Judah himself ignored this custom when he moved off to the land of Canaan and took this woman. But now, suddenly, he's an observant Jew, and so he arranges a, a marriage for his firstborn. His name is Ur. And the young woman with whom he, mar- he arranges the marriage is called Tamar. But before that union can bring forth any children, Ur does something so base that the Lord just takes him out. We are not told exactly what it is, but it is so evil in the sight of the Lord that Ur's life is forfeited. And you have to remember, consider this, that this is told to us before the giving of the law to Moses. God's people, even in this time, operated under a certain code of conduct long before the law was actually written down, codified, if you will. 
And you see that sprinkled through the early chapters of, well, all of the early part of the New, uh, excuse me, Old Testament until the law is actually given to Moses. For example, when the Lord brought the animals to Noah's ark, he brought them two by two, except the clean animals. He brought those in a group of by sevens because when the time came, the Lord wanted them to have sufficient to sacrifice to the Lord. So he brought clean and unclean animals, if you will. But this was long before the whole sacrificial system had been written down, long before there were procedures and instructions given and a Levitical priesthood to carry them out. So according to this procedure that they followed, this code of conduct, Judah then gives Tamar to his second son, Onan, in anticipation of what would later become the law of the Leveret marriage. But Onan is no better man than his brother Ur. He is perfectly willing to indulge the lust of his flesh with this woman, but he had no intention of doing the honorable duty and father a child in his dead brother's name. Now, Pastor Joe Foch points out here that the Hebrew language is very explicit. It says that he repeatedly went in unto her. God didn't judge him after just one immoral encounter with this woman. It was apparently his habitual practice and intent to use her for his pleasure, but not to do anything honorable beyond that. And so the Lord took him out. Now, Judah is fast running out of sons. And he is loath to render up his youngest son to Miss Tamar. So he lies to her, makes a promise that he apparently does not intend to keep, and he sends her home to her father's house. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in chapter 38, verse 11. It says, <clears throat> Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. At this point in the story, sometime now, as Shelah is growing into marriageable age, that Canaanite woman that Judah married dies. And so he mourns her for a little while, and then he hustles off to a party with yet another pagan friend. And with these agrarian cultures, there were um, festival periods that would take place at shearings and harvestings, and it was a very festive and celebratory time. So he goes to a party, and this is where Tamar is going to take matters into her own hands. Word has reached her that Judah's number three son, Shelah, is more than marriageable, more than mature enough to do the job, and that he is being withheld from her. So she's going to pose as a temple prostitute in order to get what is her due. Chapter 38, starting in verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself. Y'all, that is the costume, 
the uniform, if you will, of a Canaanite temple prostitute. So she has taken off her widow's clothes and put on this disguise that is the temple prostitute. And she sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? They're transacting this business out there on the road, y'all, and I presume it's broad daylight. So here is this Hebrew man transacting business with a Canaanite temple prostitute. And she says, what will you give me? And he's like, well, I don't have any money on me. Uh, What would you therefore? Hey, I'll send you a goat. I'll send you a kid from the flock. I don't have anything on me, but I'll I'll send you something. And Tamar says, "Uh, really, you're going to send me something? What are you going to give me? How about a down payment? Let's talk earnest money to, to show me that you're really going to keep, be a man of your word. And so she says, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? Now, y'all, this is the birthplace of our custom of giving and receiving wedding rings. When you give the wedding ring, it is a pledge that you are going to keep the promises you have made. So when you see that ring on your hand, it's a constant reminder that before God, you made promises and you are to keep your word. You and your spouse. Now, the thing is that he's going to give her what is in effect his wallet and and his fingerprints, like a retinal scan and a DNA sample. The most identifiable things on his person, he's going to relinquish to this Canaanite temple prostitute. He's got the family seal on a cord around his neck, and he's going to give it up to this woman. She asks for it, and he gives it to her. Doom cough. Can't you... Okay, I'm telling you, if I was making all this stuff up, that would be one. Of, this is one of the first stories I would edit out. There is no way. But God tells us the truth because the truth is we need a savior. We are also sick with sin apart from Christ, and we will do the most ridiculous things. So, the latter part of verse 18 here, and she said, you know, he said, well, what shall I give you? She says, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent, now mind you, here's the guy. He doesn't mind standing there on the road entering into this transaction. But what, he doesn't want to bring the goat back himself? Now he's too dignified for this? I don't understand it. He's going to rope some other person into this sin. So he's going to get his friend to do the payment deal and get his wallet back, okay? When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. 
He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at a name? But they said, There's been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Oh, dear, what are we going to do? Oh, let her keep them. Otherwise, we, mind you, we, Judah, will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. I don't know whether Judah's conscience is smiting him over all of this, or if he's just afraid it's going to get around that he doesn't keep his word. Whatever reason, he just lets the whole matter drop until three months go by and the whole ugly business resurfaces. Chapter 38, verse 24. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. All right. It was the custom in the pagan culture in which Judah has chosen to immerse himself Brace yourself, women, for this fact that women, even married women, would do a turn as a temple prostitute. They were required to serve their God in this manner. It was a sign of your devotion to, your surrendering your life to the pagan fertility God. And so you would take a turn as a temple prostitute. And there were male temple prostitutes as well as female, all to this pagan fertility God. And it breaks my heart when you carry this story out. A, when people turn away from the true and living God, they will turn to the most vile practices. And what happened in this situation is that they would generate an awful lot of unwanted babies. And they would just dispose of them like trash in a horrible, fiery death. It just broke God's heart. And he said, these people, unrepentant, cannot come into my presence. And that's why they were forbidden to come into the assembly of God. Because they were so wicked and vile. When you can be this hard-hearted and perform this kind of slaughter of innocent there is something definitely wrong with your culture. So, further, if you partook of one of these temple prostitutes, it was a sign of worship that you, as the partaker, were involved in an act of worship to this God. What was Judah thinking? What was he doing? Who was he worshiping when he transacted with a temple prostitute how far had he gone from jehovah god and then why is he suddenly acting so holy and you might read this account and say holy where is he being holy well the traditional mode of capital punishment in israel is stoning unless you are the daughter of the high priest or any priest and you are caught in the act of adultery or excuse me harlotry if you are caught in the act of harlotry, you were to be burned to death. And it was before the Levitical priesthood was instituted, remember? So the head of every family, the head of every tribe, 
was the high priest of his tribe. So suddenly, Judah is casting himself in the role of priest, high priest for the family. And he's demanding that this daughter-in-law be brought out and burned because as the daughter, she was caught in the act of harlotry. All of a sudden, with his righteous indignation, all fury and, and wrath and scorn, he demands that she be brought out to be burned alive. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 tells us, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. You remember the pledge that he gave to Tamar? Well, verses 25 and 26. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Now, a lot of the Hebrew writers and the rabbis that I read regarding this, they rate Tamar pretty high. They say that she was a modest woman who was behaving in a very modest fashion toward her father-in-law in the way that she dealt with the two sons who were given to her to father a child. And even when, when Judah treated her badly over the whole Shelah thing, she still behaved in a modest fashion. Now, I don't know if they're grading on a curve between these two people, you know, but God's, in, our, in God's economy, sin is sin. There are no greater sins and lesser sins. You're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. But by the blood of Jesus, all our scarlet sins are washed white as snow. But they're not seeking the God of Israel yet. So I just wanted you to know that in the Hebrew mind, she is thought more highly of than Judah. So Judah gets a good look at these things, and it says simply, Judah recognized. And said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. Did y'all forget this was a study of the book of Ruth for just a moment there? Are you thinking, why in the world are we taking the time to look at this mess? Will you look at the completion of this story between Judah and Tamar, and you will have a partial answer why we're looking at this. Verses 27 through 30. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took a, and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Perez means breach. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Sarah. This is just another one of those examples of the elder serving the younger. It is one of those types we see sprinkled throughout the Old Testament that what came first will have to give way to what comes second. The law had to give way to the lawgiver, perfecter, Jesus Christ. So it's just one of those types in Scripture that I find fascinating. So back to the book of Ruth. 
When the citizens of Bethlehem pronounced their blessing upon this bridal couple, Boaz and Ruth, they said, moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Y'all, if this was your wedding toast, and someone said to you, we want you to be like Judah and Tamar, how would you feel about that? <laughs> Gee, thanks. Judah means praise. And it was the father's intention all along that his son would come through praise. And even though Judah himself was not worthy of the honor, God said, my son will be the lion of the tribe of Judah. What these people don't know is that the promised seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3 is passing right through them. And even though Judah did not behave himself, God's word still stands. And so he said, you are the people I am bringing Messiah through your bloodline, you and Tamar now. And then you get down to the point where it's that Hebrew man Selma and the harlot Rahab. That seed is being passed through all of this, these bloodlines. And, you know, you look at this story of Joseph, in, that, that's, that, that horrible story of Judah and Tamar interrupts, and you think, now there's a candidate for the, for the tribe of, uh, or for the Messiah. This stellar individual, this man of great character, wouldn't you think that if you were going to plan the Messiah, you'd bring him through some sterling characters? But our Savior is very man of very man, and his genealogy is a big old mess, and so is ours. And he is the son of man, while still being the son of God. It's a reminder to me that we do not come to God by works of our own righteousness, but by grace. And so when Bethlehem offers that blessing, they are not saying, we hope you will be like Judah and Tamar. They are saying, Boaz and Ruth, we pray that Messiah will come through you. And he did. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Boy, the grace of God is a wonderful thing. Verse 13, back in chapter 4 of Ruth, we pick up the story. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Think, the whole time she was married to Malin, over the course of the 10 years, however long those two were married, while Naomi and her family were down there, the Lord closed her womb because he had greater plans for it. And here it is, that she would be the vessel that would give birth eventually to the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's astounding. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And y'all, that's true of you and I. This could be said to you right now. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And then look what else. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. She became this little boy's principal caregiver. And that will restore you from old age. Let me tell you from personal experience. Then the neighbor women gave him a name saying, 
A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. Now, I haven't given a lot of time or study or meditation to this, but I want to, and I'm going to throw it out there for you. The fathers named their sons. Why are the women of Bethlehem naming this baby? Hmm, I have no idea. You figure it out and let me know. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Y'all, that's King David. Ruth, the Moabitess, is his great-grandmother. Do you think she had any concept that that's what was happening to her when she was out there in the fields every day, picking up leftover bits of grain? What a story this is. And the baby's name, Obed, it's a Hebrew word that means servant. If you use a Hebrew dictionary to look up this name, you'll see two different definitions sometimes. Servant, but in the Hebrew mind, that word takes on the meaning of the thing that you are serving. So if you are serving the Most High God, that word becomes worship. And here is this baby son who was born to this Gentile bride and this godly Hebrew man, a son who is worshipped, who is the servant. It's a beautiful picture. But look at this lineage. It includes the likes of Tamar, a woman who played the harlot, and Rahab, a woman who was a harlot, and Ruth, the Moabitess from Moab, and Bathsheba, an adulteress. Please do not ever tell me that the grace of God is not sufficient for any and all who come to him with a genuine heart. Anyone who asks, anyone who asks, his grace will abound. And to finish off the book of Ruth, we have a genealogical proof that Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It continues to give us some information. And if we were going to stop and take the time to count the names listed here from Perez, who was born to Judah and Tamar, all the way to David, you would count 10 names. Hang on to that thought. It goes like this. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. To Hezron was born Ram, to Ram Amminadab. And to Amminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salma. He's the man that married Rahab. And to Salma was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Ten generations. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2. There is a law recorded that says an illegitimate child is disqualified from the assembly of the Lord for guess how many generations? Ten. So from Paris, who's considered an illegitimate son, to King David, God, the man after God's own heart, the man God always intended to anoint as king over Israel, it was ten generations. The people demanded and got Saul. But God's intention all the time was to wait for that 10th generation because the letter of the law had to be fulfilled. But all the while the letter of the law is coming down, the grace of God is going through this bloodline in a powerful and mighty way. The Lord's anointed king over Israel, David, do you think he had any idea that he descended from these souls 
these sweet people, Boaz and Ruth. And do you think as they were living and moving and having their being that they had any idea that God was using them in this way? Through all their difficult days, they just walked humbly and obeyed God when the rest of the culture around them did not. And that faithful walk rose and shone like the brightest gem in the pages of this black backdrop of the book of Judges. And now, ladies, this side of the cross, there are no illegitimate children in God's kingdom. There are no 10 generations required before you can enter into the presence of the Most High God. You have the blood of his son. That is your entrance every time. This historical record is one that, wants, that makes me just so badly want to walk worthy of what God has done for me. And to follow the example of these precious people, learning to wait patiently, even if it's dark, and to walk humbly with God and allow his will for me to become my chief goal, my, my delight, and the ultimate aim of my life. Here this sweet woman, Ruth, waited upon the Lord. And then she, he renewed her strength. And she mounted up with wings and eagles. This girl from the toilet bowl who came seeking grace and shelter under the shadow of the Almighty's wings and then mounted up to fly and soar high on top. And then think about this man, Boaz. Oh, what a mighty man of wealth who followed hard after the God of Israel, even when every other man was doing what was right in his own eyes. Little knowing that the whole time his faithful walk was giving us a beautiful picture of our Savior, our Redeemer, our Goel, the Lord Jesus Christ, but not a Redeemer in the slave market, a Redeemer in a love song, in a beautiful romance of redemption. And through all their blood, sweat, and tears, and uncertainty, all the way to the joy and the peace and the comfort and the security, all the way between those things, God was faithful and good all the time. And he is just as faithful and just as good today. In whatever circumstance you find yourself, he is the God under whose wings you may seek refuge. And if it seems dark, you just stay at the feet of your Redeemer and take courage. Be strong in the Lord and walk worthy. And whether he comes to get you through death or the rapture, or whether he tarries and many more generations follow, won't it be a lovely thing for you to hear someday in heaven, not only well done, good and faithful servant from the lips of your father, but the generations that follow you to be able to rise up and call you blessed because your story was an inspiration to those who follow, whether it's following you right now or following you when you're long gone from this planet. What a charge that we have from this powerful story. And I want to close with this verse that was written by Ruth's great-grandson, King David. And I take this seriously. There is an imperative hidden here. And I want you to just embrace it and say it with me when we get there. It's from Psalm chapter 70, verse 4. And it says, and I can just picture him with a picture of his great-grandmother in his mind as he's writing this. Let all who seek you 
This is Jehovah God, the true and living almighty God. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, and this is our part, let God be magnified. And all I can say to that is amen and amen. Hallelujah. Let God be magnified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be magnified, be glorified as we bless your name. Thank you for making us legitimate, for grafting us in, calling us co-heirs with your blessed son and accepting us fully and completely into your family. We recognize that we come only by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, in whose matchless name we pray. And the beautiful bride of Christ said, Amen. Ladies, go and sin no more.